Hello, you are now listening to The Lives of Writers, a podcast presented by Autofocus Books, a literary publisher of artful autobiographical writing, which you can find today at autofocuslit.com. If you like the show, you can support it by checking out our books in addition to those by our guests and guest hosts, or you can rate, review, or share the show wherever it makes sense to do so. You can stay up to date with what we're doing by finding us on Instagram at autofocuslit. And you can also subscribe to our newsletter, which we'll be sending out in January 2024. This will keep you informed about the podcast, of course, but also about our books and upcoming submission calls for the imprint and online journal. To sign up, you can go right now to autofocuslit.com email. And finally... If you like the show to the point that you'd like to represent it on a t-shirt, we have one available for order in our online store, along with our books at autofocuslit.com books. All right, that's my advertisement. Here's the show. Once again, welcome back. This is The Lives of Writers. Thanks for listening. I am the publisher of Autofocus Books and producer of this podcast, Michael Wheaton. Today's episode of The Lives of Writers is hosted by Jeff Alessandrelli. Jeff Alessandrelli is the author of several books, including the poetry collection Fur Not Light. He is also the director and co-editor of the Small Presses, Phonograph Editions, and Bunny Press. Coming up very soon, you'll hear Jeff in conversation with Kazim Ali. Kazim Ali is a poet, novelist, and essayist. His most recent book is Sukun, New and Selected Poems, which draws from his six previous full-length collections and includes 35 new poems. He's also published novels, translations, anthologies, and a memoir. He was a founding editor of Nightboat Books. All right. Let's get to it. This is Jeff Ellis and Jelly's conversation with Kazim Ali. Um, I am in my living room in San Diego, and it is um, cloudy and gray right now, which is not the norm, but it's also a weird little town in that it can be cloudy and gray like this in the morning and then be like bright sun by like... 12 or 1. So it's hard to say if it's going to actually be a cloudy day or not. But you could probably tell the light is kind of bright and white. You know, it's not like sunny, sunny light. Where where are you located? I'm located in Portland, Oregon. Oh, okay. All right. Um, and you two are a publisher, right? You run Phonograph? I run, yeah, a small nonprofit press called Phonograph Editions. Yeah. Yeah, which I know of because... Um, you were publishing Timmy Straw. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, we yeah. just got a copy of their book, like, well. I was supposed to blurb it, but it happened at a, you know, my mother passed away in May, so that was sort of like uh, unexpectedly. And so that was a little, it kind of disrupted everything for me. And Timmy had asked, I've been following Timmy's work for years because I found a chapbook of theirs in a bookstore, I think in Portland, which was like, a real underground publication. It was just eight and a half by 11 typing pages like stapled together. And it said, this is, chapbook is published in an edition of 80, (laughs) you know? So it's like back in the Kinko's days when, when I was a, you know, 20 year old, we were just publishing our own little pamphlets of poetry. You know, we'd go to Kinko's and just like run 50 copies off. So we could, we we would go to the open mic and just sell them, you know, for grocery money, basically. Um, So there are countless little small press, we would now call them small press editions, but I must have done like eight or 10 little chapbooks like that when I lived in Albany, New York, they probably don't even exist anymore, you know? Um, but we would do exactly that. We'd run whatever money we had, however much money we had to run, you know, like 20 copies of like a four page pamphlet that we would just fold over and then we'd sell it for like a buck at the reading, (laughs) you know, and we'd have money for, you know, whatever we wanted it for, like a little pocket change, I guess. 
Yeah, that was a, those are different days in publishing. I mean, now people do web, web publishing where you can get the work out there very easily, but you don't normally, you don't getting paid anything for that. So that was part of why we were doing it. So we could have a little bit of extra dough rolling around our pockets. Do you still have those? <laughs> no, no, I don't have any of them. They're out there somewhere. They're they're probably there's probably nothing none left nothing left. You know, it's probably just got tossed out or thrown away. Or you know, I might have one or two lying around. You know, somewhere. And I guess as you get older, I mean, a selected poems is a kind of milestone achievement. Do you start thinking about like an archive? You start thinking about kind of how the past dovetails with, I guess, the present and frankly the future when you might not kind of be here. Yeah, it was a weird moment to look back at a body of work over the course of almost 25 years, even though my first book was published not until 2005. Um, I've been writing and collecting work um, quite seriously for a little bit longer than that. So I could say that this is this is representative of about 25 years of work, almost 25 years of work. And it was weird for two reasons. First of all, I was not necessarily just choosing my favorite poems um, or the poems that I thought were the best, quote unquote, but I was trying to create a trajectory through the work itself. And including, I put in lots of poems in here that other people really love. I mean, I wrote them, so I don't dislike them, but they might not have made it in. But I felt like, oh, these are... These are poems that I've had a lot of response for over the years or poems that, you know, people know really well. Not, I mean, who knows a poem really well, but it's true that some of the poems that go up in these canonizing kind of archives, like say the Poetry Foundation website collects 10 of my poems. A lot of times those will be the 10 poems that people who are looking to teach poetry or use my work in their classes will use them because they're accessible and at the fingertips or I have a poem that's in the poetry out loud archive so all these high school students will record it and put it on YouTube and it's you know it's a fine poem but it is it is the only one that they know you know what poem that poem is called rain okay and then a poem of mine and then a poem of mine that a lot of people teach because it happens to be on the poetry foundation website is a long poem from my book bright felon called home and it's actually the last poem in that book and it's the culminating poem of that book. So it's not its not a poem that I would have ordinarily included in a selected poems, but I did put it in this because I felt like that's part of, part of the archive that's being created. And I also discovered as I was making this sort of trajectory through the poems, I realized what types of recurring obsessions that I myself have and what kinds of even recurring images. So for example, if you did like a word search on like, you know, the color blue, as opposed to say the color red, you know, in my work, it's just recurs over and over again. Lots of things are blue. And it's a very watery book. You know, there are lots of oceans and lakes and rivers and, and ponds and water in general, you know, and lots of boats floating through the book. So I tried to build that. I tried to accentuate that through this collection. And the other thing that I discovered as I was going through all of my published work is that um, sometimes I even used recurring images and phrases. Sometimes even a line would reappear almost exactly the way it was like 13 years earlier, you know? And so I really actually kept all of those in on purpose. I thought like, oh, this poem is answers back that other one. And what was really funny is that without planning it, some accidental resonances happened. So for example, on page one, on page 47, there's a poem called Garland. And then on on page 147, a hundred pages later, there's a poem called Theft, which features the garland from the earlier poem Garland, you know? So I thought it just things like that resonances that kind of came together that let me know that 
or on page 56, there's a poem that's answered by another poem that appears on page 104. So it was these kinds of echoes that sort of let me know that there was a cadence or a sense of musical completion to some of these gestures of the mind in language that I was making. And I really appreciated that. And the other thing that I really wanted to do is show the range of my, um, not necessarily thematic range, but formal range. I wanted to show poems that used different strategies of rhythm and line and stanza and shape and different approaches to the lyric address, um, different uses of language, poems that were more discursive or narrative along with poems that were more, um, maybe a little more unmoored in, in those, in those forms. So I feel like one might think, um, Something always struck struck me, which was one of my professors in graduate school when I was working on my thesis was Mark Doty. And we talked a lot about music and, you know, because I'm so interested in music, like, you know, I have a poem about Alice Coltrane in this book. I have a poem about Sheila Chandra. Um, I, I have a piece in this book. There's an essay in the middle of this book. There's, there's several actual discursive essays discursive prose in the book there is an essay in the middle of the book and then there's an essay at the end of the book and the essay in the middle of the book is about among other things about yoko ono so i feel like i've i've always had a relationship to music and what mark talked to me about was um, the way one hurt hears a suite of music is different because you know now now especially in this conversation that i had with mark was probably almost 25 years ago so of course now it's quite different and a lot of the way that we listen to music is not curated by the artist but cu we curate it uh, we choose our own playlists for example or we leave something up to chance where we might choose a channel of a certain artist and then say shuffle and we just hear and, and in a way there's a randomness to that that's quite beautiful because then you can hear a range of of a band's sonic interests as well as their thematic interests as well as their songwriting interests and that's that's very interesting to me but what mark had told me at the time um we talked about the concept of the lp which you must be interested in also because you are constrained by uh length mm -hmm. you know how much you can fit on a side and then you have the form of the sides that's also interesting. You have side A and side B, and then you have like however many tracks. Say five was probably the typical for a pop um, for a pop album, um, and you would have like okay, how, what's the first? Because you're listening to it in order generally at home, right? You're putting it on and listening it to the way the band has curated it, and so we talked about that as it relates to uh, a poetry book and sections of a poetry book and how one might think. You don't put all the, you know, ballads next to each other on side A. Mm -hmm. There's a there's a way you structure you structure it. So he told he talked to me about that about my thesis, and it really stuck with me in terms of how to order poems in a book. As a as a reader, some readers may flip through the book. That's totally fine. Some readers may look at the table of contents and see what the title is, and then go to that poem. When I was a younger um, person in high school, when I first started reading poetry. Um, I what I like to do is go to the notes section at the end of the book and read the notes and see what notes seemed very interesting and then go to that poem. You know, so there's all different ways that, and I am a believer in notes, in, in, in a good notes section. I think just reading a poet's notes section alone can teach you so much about that poet in such an interesting way. For example, Banu Kapil's book, Schizophrene, which Nightboat Books published, the notes and acknowledgments section at the end of the book is like a separate piece that is like part of the book, you know, mm -hmm. or Lucy Rock Broido, her book Master Letters has four pages of notes at the end of it for a, a book of 50, 50 pages long, you know, and just reading the notes section is so incredibly fascinating. So in my book, also the notes section is, 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 you know, I wanted to write the kind of notes section that I myself liked to read. Um, 
so yeah, those are some scattered thoughts about how I put this book together. No, yeah. There's a lot there's a lot more to say, but you should ask me what you want to know. No, no, that's I mean, I guess I have various kind of tendrils of follow-up questions, but you did previously, and I mean you mentioned blue, you had a selected poems that was put out by HarperCollins India. Yes. Yeah. And yeah, when, all ones blue. Yeah. When did that come out? Um, well, that first of all, that title "All Ones Blue" is a is a phrase from an Afa Shahid Ali poem called "Barcelona Airport" that I, that I love. That book came out at the very end of 2015, um, at beginning, uh, almost the beginning of 16, maybe. So I actually don't know what the year on the book is. I forget. It's either one of those. Uh, but that was because none of my books had ever been published in India up until that point. And at at that time, I was traveling a lot in India. I was going for readings. I'd been like every couple of years, pretty much. I was going to India for uh, a month or more. Um, so we wanted there to be a book for people to buy when I went there. So it, that that's a small, it's a new and selected, but it's a small book. It's about 100 plus pages like that. And it has a section in there of early poems, quote unquote, early poems that have never that have never been published anywhere else. So for interested readers who can find the bootleg copy of it in the States, it's, it was not supposed to be sold in the States, but of copies flo- are floating around, of course. Um, but it does have about 30 pages of, of earlier poetry and translations that don't appear in any of my other books. So it has its own little place as a sort of like as a side project um, within my body of work. But this new and selected was not meant to be that, you know, there's one approach to the selected poems, which is like just a little small cut. Um, And I love those too. I love selected poems that are like that, that are really small cuts. You know, Jean Valentine's new and selected called Home Deep Blue probably had about 10 pages from each of her books in it. Um, And then maybe 10 uh, or 15 pages of new poetry. And it was, it's it's a very lean little book of about 60 pages or 70 pages long. Um, But this new and selected was, meant to be the other kind you know it really was meant to be a little bit of a retrospective but for me not solely a retrospective but also a reevaluation. because I like some other poets have done it's not typical but um, Galway Cannell did it so I, I said if it's good enough for him it's good enough for me I did revise these poems oh you did yeah not heavily I mean not not like you know I didn't rewrite them. In one case, I did. There's one poem in there that is heavily re- heavily revised. It could be said to be a different version of the earlier poem, actually. Um, but most of the rest of them, uh, met, I shouldn't say most of the rest of them, many of the rest of them have, have had little revisions put in. Yeah. And they're better and stronger. Well, because that's like Marianne Moore famously revised her poems towards the end of her life. And folks yeah, yeah. say they're yeah. early. Well, and what, what I find interesting of, about her is that the one poem that she revised, the one about poetry, mm-hmm. her revision, it makes it much stronger. But it's not the norm when people reprint it. They normally reprint the whole thing. It's like they don't actually trust her as an artist, that she knew better about her own work. So going into this project, did you just start looking at some of these and say, I could make this better and I'm going to, or did no. you, I guess I'm just thinking about like honoring your, the, the first version of yourself who wrote them or like being like, this is going to be a culmination, at least at this point in my life. And I want to make it what I want to make it now in 2023. Yeah, it's neither of those things. I mean, the written poem on the page was always just a snapshot of a moment in time. And oftentimes when I read them at readings, I would read them differently. If you ever had a book Mm -hmm. of mine in my hands and you were hearing me read the poem out loud, you might hear small little differences, little grammatical shifts or changes, you know, nothing major or significant, but very occasionally, yes, I would leave out a line or I would end earlier or later. You know, I I, I learned about this from Olga Brumas and T. Begley, who wrote a book called Sappho's Gymnasium, and it appears in three versions. It was first published as a single title. Then it was included in Olga Brumas's collected poems, which was called Rave, which I love. And then it, then Nightboat Books reprinted Sappho's Gymnasium. But each version of Sappho's Gymnasium is a little different. And when I was comparing the new version against the older two versions, that's when I first realized that the 
first two versions were also not identical to each other. There were small little shifts and changes. Sometimes a line would be transposed. Sometimes a poem would be in one section versus another section. And I did ask Olga about it. And she said, it's an oral document. It just grows and changes. And we really wanted the written to represent that. We wanted there to be differences. And so for me, the fact that there might be a slight tweak or a shift in a line or a change um, from the a printed version in the version into the version that was that you hear me read out loud to the version that's in Sukun, um, is it, it's it's just part of how a poem breathes. You know, I'm not overly concerned by it. You know, when we have Dickinson's alternate alternate wordings, quote unquote, and people argue about which one she intended and which one was the final one, it's that's not the point at all. The point is that the poem itself sort of has a little bit of a quiver in it. And it can shift and it and it can change. And her her alternate wordings, I mean, without with um I have but the power to kill without the power to die, versus I have but the art to kill without the art to die, is they're really different from each other. It's not as if one's better than the other. They they shift each other. Or the the ceaseless rosemary, the atar, as I've uh, pressed the atar from the rose, something. So she, the, and now the lady lies in ceaseless rosemary. That's one version. The woman is dead. She's lying in the casket. Now the lady lies in ceaseless rosemary. And the alternate wording was, now the lady lies in spiceless sepulcher. Though, hmm. so first of all... <laughs> Sure, the sounds are rhythmically similar, but they're opposite things. Ceaseless rosemary is a beautiful image. Spiceless, spiceless sepulcher, not only does it mention the grave, but it's actually the opposite of ceaseless rosemary because ceaseless rosemary means the spice is in the grave forever and spiceless sepulcher means it's there's no spice there at all. She's just dour and alone. So they're alternate wordings that were opposite of one another. And the fact that, you know, did Dickinson choose one or the other misses the point that either that the poem can be both, that the poem is both, that death is, mm-hmm. that in, de- in the death of somebody, one's, one can see both, you know. Um, and I love that. And so that I don't pretend that any of my <laughs> revisions were as dramatic or as, um, as intense, but. Uh, in a certain case, it honored the poem as a living object that was that was its own that could have multiple multiple ways of seeing it or knowing it. Yeah, it felt less like I was engraving it in stone, and I've never felt that way when I printed a poem in a book. I never felt like it was just the book is not a tomb, right? It's a living document. Yeah. It, it's, in which you just bury texts and leave them there forever, you know? So when you put together a collected in 30 years or whatever, they'll, they'll change again, probably. I, yeah, I imagine, I imagine they would. Yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine why they wouldn't. Let me say it that way. <laughs> um, there's also though a whole new book in here. Yeah. There's two, there's three sections. There's three sections in here that have not been collected in books, full books before. It opens with a little sort of triptych of poems called ternary, which is a musical term. And then there was a chapbook uh, called Crib and Cage. It, it, you know, Crib and Cage was supposed to come out and be a chapbook and be printed in the world. But the press that did it uh, has had some troubles, let's say. And so they, they did 50 copies of it as an advanced printing for AWP one year. And then the book itself never released. It just, it's just, it's available as like POD. You can still order it on Amazon, but it never quite released as a book. That's Crib and Cage. And then what you call the book length sequence at the end, there's 50 pages at the end in that section called Tanpura, which is also a musical term. Do you play music yourself? No, you know what? I don't. I love listening to it. And I've always wanted to learn, uh, you know, desperately wanted to learn, but I never, I never had the, uh, I guess affinity to pick it up too easily, and uh, I made a couple of not quite wholehearted events over the year uh, attempts, a couple of half-hearted attempts over the years to learn to play, and it, ne- I, it never really stuck. So, but I am I, I really I love music, and I'm kind of 
and, and I, I, I learn about the theories around what I'm listening to. I try to learn about what I'm listening to mm-hmm. so I can experience it as a more knowledgeable person. Well, yeah, and the speaker in that Yoko Ono poem, um, I think, says that they've they performed that piece, right? Yeah, of course I have. Yeah. Secret piece. <laughs> I guess one of the things that, you know, at one point, the speaker, one of these poems, I mean, talks about how their sense of alienation opened the door to poetry. Yeah. And I'm curious if that, you know, did you start out as a writer or a reader? Uh, I think it was both for me almost simultaneously. Um, Even as an extremely young child, like first learning language, I wanted to write books. And so I did one thing where uh my sister had this book about the nine planets and it was just like one page on each planet and i took it and i rewrote it and i did the drawings myself and then i took it to my teacher and told her i'd written a book i basically plagiarized this book (laughs) and the teacher was amazed of course and thought it was you know so brilliant and she made copies for everyone in the class and uh my sister was furious because <laughs> she said I stole her book. I had stolen her book. Um, so I don't know. I think I'd, I'd always had this sense of language as something that one created with. I always knew about the books that I was reading that someone else like me in some way had written them. So it, t- it was a short leap to me wanting to write books. And so all through school, I, I, you know, thought of myself as a writer and would try to write these books that, you know, of course I could never write anything. Um, but it wasn't poetry. It wasn't really poetry until, uh, you know, later at, at the end of, at the end of school and in college, when I was a senior in high school, I came across the black poets, which was an anthology edited by Dudley Randall kind of pathbreaking anthology that included many writers like Sonia Sanchez, Gwendolyn Brooks, Mari Evans, um, Leslie Reese. I, I don't think Lucille Clifton was in there or if she was in there, I didn't notice. Oh, and I read a book called, I had an anthology called City Poems that was edited by a Chicago um, writer named Arnold Adolf. And he too included many writers of color and black writers, but it was not solely, it was all, it was everyone. And there was a writer named, a poet named, of course, he's a you know, well-known poet named Victor Hernandez Cruz. And I read his poems in there. So there were these writers of color who were using English in a way that was not a standard English, and they were using it as a literary language. And I was very attracted to that because at home, the people who I grew up with and, and learned English from had their own way of speaking English. Not only was it Indian English, which is different from American Standard English, it has its own, you know, types of terms and vocabulary and even constructions um, and draws from British, you know, Standard English um, in its own way. But they were also multilingual people speaking Urdu and English. And, and when one speaks English, in an, in a South Asian immigrant community, one often peppers it with Urdu. And when one speaks Urdu, one's often peppering it with English. So I always learned in the home that language was this sort of porous thing that crossed borders easily. And then when I came across, but in poetry, I only ever saw the examples of a standard English. The closest I ever came when I was younger reading poetry to reading a non-standard English was reading, you know, Ginsburg's Howell, where the rhythms of the lines are, you know, break grammar in that it's not like a standard grammatical line. So I knew that poetry was this was the place where things like that could happen. But it took me really reading Mari Evans and Sonia Sanchez, I would say more than anybody, um, that I realized, and Victor Hernandez Cruz, that I realized that a lit, lit, that 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 type of non-standard English, quote unquote, that language of English that came from 
one's own community could be a literary language as well. That it, it was equal to Tinter and Abbey, say, you know. Yeah. And now, are how many siblings do you have? I have an older and a younger sisters, both. And are they, what do they do? Are they writers? Are they artists? Are they involved in the arts? We're all, well, yeah, we are all artists. And ed, yeah, we are all educators. My younger sister was a, was a, uh, an art. Uh, she was, an, she's an artist and a photographer. Um, although she, she has um, not been active in, 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 in the, in the world of visual art. Um, but that's how she trained. And she became a, a elementary, elementary um, art teacher and then my and then and junior high and then my older sister is also a writer and a and a professor she's a professor of of diet and nutrition she was a, a clinical dietitian for many years and then she moved into the um the teaching side of things and she got involved in teaching um food and culture for the for a dietetics program and it has actually co-authored a book on uh food and culture of uh of uh of east asia and south asia and that's like a textbook. So she, but she, but she's sort of, she's writing in that area. Um, and she writes as well. So maybe you'll see something from her someday. <laughs> and did your folks, I assume, encourage the families like writing or? I don't know. I, I mean, I guess so. There, we, we were, we were not, not really, not overly. I mean, they didn't stand in the way of anything, but. Um, you know, when I was younger, when I was in high school, I decided I was going to be a YA writer and, and, you know, my dad paid for me to take this sort of correspondence course where I was sending away my stories and getting feedback. So they were supportive in those ways, but I don't think they quite understood my, um, life, my desire to be, uh, to not do anything else with my life (laughs) except write and try to make, you know, it was always a question of like, but can you make a living doing that? How will you pay the bills? And none of those things were overly concerning to me, (laughs) which I think was probably disturbing to them. It was probably disturbing to them as a, you know, sort of more or less middle-class migrant family where they had sacrificed a lot and lived through a lot in order to like get to where they were. And then to have a kid who was sort of, you know, saying he was going to turn his back on all of that and make his own way. And I did for many years, you know, I, I lived very poorly for many years because, well, actually it wasn't because I was an artist. It was because I was working as an organizer in the student movement. So I was making probably the first, my first job out of college, I was making $13,000 a year. Um, and that was in 1993 or something like that. So even though it was a long time ago, I have to tell you, it was still not very much money. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Where were you based then? Albany, Albany, New York. Yeah, I was I was organizing for uh, a statewide student uh, organization that organized um, public university students in the SUNY system. So I was traveling around the state and talking to different uh, student organizations and working on. And it's the second year I was there, I became a, le- a registered lobbyist, and I was not traveling around the state as much anymore. I was based in Albany and working in the New York State Legislature. Were you writing seriously at this time? I was. Yeah, I was. And I I didn't have an inkling that I was going to do anything with it, but I was writing poetry. Yeah. A lot of those poems are what's in the Indian selected poems, actually, that that will not that will not be published in America, have not been and will not be. (laughs) Well, I mean, this is a selected poems, but obviously, you know, looking at at the beginning, also by Kazim Ali, there's cross genre work you published. There's nonfiction, some of which is in this book. Fiction translation as editor. I mean, how do you kind of navigate? Is just language your medium, or how do you navigate? You know, um, well, what form it's going to take? Yeah, I mean, the form determines. Well, the form is how a piece of writing is received. So it it matters what the intention is. I'm writing a book about Lucille Clifton right now. I've actually turned in the final manuscript of it. Um, And it's a, it's it's a critical sort of critical essays about her work. It would never occur to me to write it any other way because I know I want that work to be received. As far as something, whether does it turn into an essay or or a poem, I think those two forms have similar intentions where you're, they're both exploratory and interrogatory. And it has happened quite a lot that something that starts out in, as an essay might 
revise itself into a poem or the other way around. And I think that's one of the reasons why it was so exciting for me to do the book called Silver Road, because in that book, I was allowed to put various different kinds of writing together between covers. So there are poems in the book. There are what might be called lyric prose. And there are also discursive essays as well, just discursive prose. And we put in the section of Sukun that is from Silver Road, I put in all the different ver the, all the different types. There are four different kinds of writing in Silver Road, four different genres of writing. And I put them all in there. I put all four of them in there. That's why that essay about Yoko Ono might feel out of place uh, in the context of Sukun itself. But in the context of Silver Road, it's, it's just one of eight different essays like that that are in the book. What about with fiction, you know? Yeah. Is that something we've... Po poetry and nonfiction, but I mean, there's you have five published f fiction manuscripts. Yes, and it actually might be six by now. Let's see, what do you have in here? Hold on. Fiction. Citadel of West. Oh, yes. I used to call Wind Instrument, which appears under cross-genre, I used to call it fiction. Because um, it is. I mean, it more or less is, but we we moved it to cross genre because it's, it's like in little fragmented lines. So it's sort of halfway between poetry and fiction. Um, yeah. With fiction, it's like when I want to tell a story, when I get obsessed with a character, when I'm telling, normally telling it in third person. Um, and then of course the Citadel of Whispers, my choose your own adventure book is genre fiction. So that belongs squarely in there. I guess I go to fiction when I'm really interested in, you know, really making it up. I don't want to rely, I want to use my imagination to imagine circumstance and, 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 or sometimes fiction is a way of telling the hardest truths because you can disguise it as fiction and, and you don't have to feel exposed as if it's happening to you. Um, so I've been known to do that as well. <laughs> well, with poems, can it ever be fictionalized too? I uh, sure it could be. I think it could be. I don't see why it couldn't be. Yeah, I have there. Are, I mean, as I, I've talked about it, I've, I have a poem in, in this book called Marie's Crisis. And it really is the per, the speaking eye of this poem is a persona. You know, it's an invented persona. It's not me. And when I read this poem in readings, I will often say that, you know, to clarify versus, say, the poems about Icarus that appear in, in the section called Skyward. Um, you know, it's it's Icarus of the myth who's speaking yet i'm speaking through him you know i'd say they're still they're they're conceptually autobiographical because even though he's talking about you know flying too close to the sun and falling into the ocean and all of the different things that happened to him i'm using that myth to tell the story of you know my father and i basically so there are ways that that happens as well. I guess I have not been overly concerned by genre distinctions. I think the main people who are concerned with genre distinctions are publishers, writers who want to be commercially successful and sell tens of thousands of copies of something, um, publishers who need to know how to market something, and maybe critics or readers who want to know how to interpret or read something. But as a writer... Um, who's primarily concerned with making good art and not necessarily concerned with selling 10,000 or 20,000 copies of something or being in the New Yorker or whatever, whatever the marker of success is these days. Um, to a writer like me, genre is not that important. It's important insofar as you as a creator and what it enables you to do. It's not important whether or not something is, you know, it's not important for me to know when people start talking about prose poetry versus a lyric essay. It's like my eyes just start glazing over because it it doesn't really matter, does it? No. <laughs> and did you come to that realization naturally, or when you were twenty six, that all you want to do was publish in the New Yorker and be like a straight up? Oh no, everyone I, mean, I don't wants know. That. It just evolve. As... <laughs> yeah. I think everyone wants that in the beginning. I know I did, but. Um... Well, some people still do when they're 75. Oh, no, I know, for sure. There's a difference. Um, if the New Yorker came calling tomorrow, I would say, hey, yeah, sure, of course, 100%. Um, the only difference is I'm not willing to change in any way. 
for that to happen. Um, I feel like pretty strongly about what I, what I'm doing in poetry and language. And I do wish, yes, of course, I wish the rest of the world would come around. (laughs) You know, I would love that. It would be great, but it's okay if it's not, if it's, it doesn't happen now. It's totally fine. I am, I'm happy doing the work that I'm doing for the people who appreciate it. That's good enough for me. Yeah. And I mean, you have, you've, you've, you've had quite a few things come out of it. It's not, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm not, I'm not like, uh, yeah, I'm not worried about, I'm not worried about anything. <laughs> I'm just doing my thing. And I do remember the writers who I loved, the, uh, the, the writers who are the dearest to me, you know, uh, Jean, Jean Valentine, um, Anna Isnin, um, really even Virginia Woolf. I mean, when I read her for the first time, certainly they're all writers who had to wait for a while. You know, they did what they did. Even Lucille Clifton, frankly, um, they did what they did. And, you know, it's, it's, they had to wait for a while before folks kind of figured it out or, 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 or got, got, you know, got on the vibe that they were on. Um, so I appreciate that. You know, Nin waited until she was in her late sixties before she really experienced wide, wide acceptance from the literary establishment. So there are many of us who, uh, do our work and, um, it's part of why I founded Nightboat Books, you know, and maybe this is why you found, founded, uh, Phonograph, you know, it's a lot of work and it's a lot of resources that you have to put into it. And you kind of give up some of your own time as a creative artist in order to do it, but you do it because you believe in work that maybe is not getting out there the way you think it needs to get out there. And so you want to make it available for the people who, who can find it. And so, um, you know, that's what we, that's what we have to do. We can't leave it to the, uh, corporate establishment to be the culture makers and the tastemakers and literally tell us what to read and who to read and who's important and what art is important. Um, it's something that's already happened in music mostly, you know, to a huge degree. And I think now, um, producers of really interesting music are taking a page from, literary fiction writers and from poets who we've always had to, to do this kind of, we, uh, we learned it originally from them, actually the independent musicians who would just go around and play their shows and they'd have like a box full of CDs that they would just produce and sell. You know, that's how we learned in Albany. When I told you about when that we were producing all those little pamphlets and stuff like that, that's who we were copying. We were copying our friends who were musicians who had little cassette tapes that they just would, would, would run at home, you know, they'd record and then run and, and take like 50 or a hundred copies. They'd print up their own little covers for them, you know? And so we were copying them. And so I now, I think now every, every type of art that is the most interesting is mostly happening in the underground off the radar. Hmm. So that's where I will always look as a reader and as a, uh, as a as a listener, I'm always want to. I'm always going to want to listen to the to that art and look at that art and read that art. But you came about you you came to that just simply by the way your life has unfolded. Essentially, how else would I? It's not like you what made do you, it. What do you mean? <laughs> I mean, some people made a con- some people make a conscious decision when they're young to kind of espouse certain ideals and then stick with oh. them throughout. You know, you're yeah, straight edge or something. Are you like I don't know? <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think um, I'm not sure. Uh, I know I've just taken the chances that I've gotten, and I've tried to make yeah. I've tried to make my own luck as much as I've been able to, um, and and I've tried to make space for others and try to enable others. So, um. It's, it's, you know, life is long and rocky and, and we take left turns and right turns and U-turns and sometimes we fall off the road and there's all of that. But throughout it all, I feel lucky as an artist who kept been, been able to keep going and to continue mm-hmm. publishing. And it's always the case that for me, it's always the case that when one project completes, it's always a forward look to and that's why this opportunity of doing the new and selected is so great because it's this retrospective, like I told you, in a really significant, huge, broad scale. 
So it provides a chance to look forward with the same kind of expansiveness. I don't know what's next for me in poetry at all. You know, it's all very, it's all blank open space at the moment. But the primacy of writing is always kind of there for you. There or are there times when you don't write a poem or write an essay for nine months. Does it just depend on where you are in your life or you are, you are kind of working, even if you're not writing actually? I think I'm always working and I think that writing in different genres also allows that because if one is not writing a poem, one might be writing an essay or one might be translating, which I also do. So there's always something to turn my attention to or mind to on the creative, on the creative side of things. It's sometimes it's slower than others. It was slow during the pandemic. I wasn't, I wasn't writing as much. I probably wrote like 13 or 14 poems like in a year, um, which might sound like it's a lot, but to me it, it sounds like I was stuck, you know? Um, and most of those mm -hmm. poems I should say were written in the space of about a few months of that year. And then the rest, you know, I, I, I had, I've, I've had moments like that, but there's always something else to write or think about or read, I think. Um, and sometimes when I'm asked to give talks or lectures, then I'll be working on that and writing the lecture, even when you're writing a lecture, even if it's not going to be published as an essay, it's, it's you still writing it, you know, still writing something down. It doesn't always work. Even a lecture doesn't always work as an essay. Um, although I think they are interesting to read. Now, I mean, so you've worked with a variety of different publishers and then, you know, you started Night Boat Books in 2004. Yeah. Yeah. Early four. And, and, you know, what, I mean, now, you know, it's almost 20 years later. I don't know. You can tell me how actively involved you are now, but it's definitely kind of turned into one of the premier yeah. nonprofit press, cool presses <laughs> that does interesting work kind of in the country. Now, yeah. What was the, I guess, how did that unfold? And then how did it take away from your writing? Was it something that you wanted to do? I mean, did you feel conflicted at times? Or I guess, how does that, how did that work? Yeah, I'm very passionate about it, about Nightboat. I ran it, uh, I ran it almost myself, um, but not, not quite. Um, but I did, I did the bulk of the work on it for only the first several years, um, probably the first three years. Um, but uh, Steven Motika, who's the director of the press now, he came on board a couple of years in as the fiction and prose editor. And then it just kind of became clear, like I was in a tenure track job. My co-founder had pulled back from the press. And, you know, I think once we all realized how much work it was going to be, it was not just going to be a lark, you know. Uh, it just kind of became clear that Steven was better at a lot of the tasks that we really needed someone to be really good at to run the press. And I just traded places with him where he became the director of the press and the, the publisher. And I was an editor with the press. And so I did that for many more years after that for, from, so he became publisher in 2007. So I ran it. We started actually in, in late Oh three. So I, I ran it myself for three, four years. And then we turned it up. We switched roles basically and then he ran it from that point on. So what you see now is the press the way he's grown it, even though I've stayed on as an editor this whole time and remained on the board and president of the board this whole time of the of the of the organization. Um, so I still edit books. Some of the books you see now, like Gillian Connolly's new book or Joel McSweeney's book is coming out. So I've edited those books, but we've moved to a collective model. So we have a collective of editors, um, seven or eight, and everyone who's on the staff comes into those meetings. And if they love a book, they can pick it up and be the editor for that book. So the managing editor will pick up a book or the publicist will pick up a book or the social media coordinator will pick up a book. So we, everyone has a role basically. And then there are a couple of us, like um, Trisha Lowe is there, um, and me and, 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 and others who are editors at large, 
where we come in as editors and like we'll work on the books and etc. With Lindsay, who's the editorial, um, Lindsay Bolt. She was the managing editor and now she's become the editorial director. So she's the one who's running the whole um, running the whole show on that side of things. Although Stephen Motika is still the publisher and 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 ultimately like the the director of the press. So it's been a it's been a it's been a great ride, you know, as you say, 20 years later. Um, you know, we've we grew from an organization with us with a two volunteers staffing and an annual budget of something like four thousand dollars. You know, that was our first year, our very first year. And now it's a you know, big organization, office in Brooklyn, staff of five or six people, publishing twenty books a year. So I'm really proud of I'm really proud of everywhere everywhere that we've come. Uh and most of that I cannot take credit any credit for. <laughs> it's your original vision goes back to what we started talking about. You were printing out chapbooks of your own and I guess your friends and you just wanted to get work out there that essentially yeah. didn't seem to be out there. Yeah, that's right. That's right. We we loved we loved we loved certain poetry and we wanted to we wanted to see it published ourselves. And with Nightboat it was the same. You know, there was some of these presses that there are now doing this great work. They weren't there, you know, mm-hmm. um, you didn't have phonograph. You didn't have octopus. You didn't have letter machine. You didn't have action books. You didn't have future poem. You didn't have Omnidon. None of these presses were there. You know who you had before Nipo? Maybe Fence books. Fence had just, just, mm-hmm. just started publishing books. And Saturnalia, I okay. think, was there. Yeah. But Sun and Moon had closed. You know, Wesleyan, among the big national, like bigger, not national, but like the bigger independents, Wesleyan was doing quite interesting work in poetry, as always. Um, and the coffeehouse list in poetry has always been like pretty solid, you know. I'm talking about innovative and experimental writing. There are plenty of presses, mm-hmm. great work. You know, I love Lucille Clifton. I've talk, talked about her a million times. So Boa Editions is there, you know. Grey Wolf was there. Co- Copper Canyon was there. There, there were the great independent presses. But if you want to talk about real experimental and innovative literature in, in that tradition that Sun and Moon was doing it, um, and even though Sun and Moon had a second iteration as Green Integer, it never kind of recaptured that zeitgeist that it had when it was Sun and Moon, really. I'm not sure why. I couldn't explain it to you. My personal very strange theory is that it was about the book design uh, because the Sun and Moon design is almost perfect. I mean, those books are just so beautiful. And the green integer design was um, uh, less compelling. So it's just strange to me, you know, like they were doing new editions of the sun and moon books as green integer books, but like, I didn't want to look, I didn't want to own them. You know, they didn't, they weren't right. Yeah. No, do you I, know what I'm talking I have about? Some of <laughs> I do. I have some of both. And yeah. I... So that's why, so that's why we didn't. So then when Nightboat came in, we came in with, with action and Nightboat came in almost simultaneously and Omnidon too. I think that those three presses, then all of this other stuff started happening. Then you had Tin House, then you had all those other presses that I mentioned, you know, even tavern books that used to exist in your town that doesn't exist anymore, that just came up and were doing all this amazing publishing. But we didn't have any of that back then. So we had to do it ourselves. Yeah. I mean, do you think you feel like you kind of started a movement? I no, I don't think so. Maybe. I don't think I did. I think we all did simultaneously. I mean, I think a lot of people had the same idea. I think Rusty Morrison, Rebecca Wolf, Joyelle McSweeney, and Joanna Scorenson at Action, Henry um, from Saturnalia. Like, I think there were a lot of people who, you know, figure. You know, Rob Casper and and the folks who started Jubilot as a journal, and then you had the pre the precursor of wave books was verse. If you remember, um, this is going back some, some days. They were all, a lot of, a lot of us got into the game around the same time, like 2003, 2004, 2005. Um, but it was the same in the early days in the early seventies, um, with the founding of Copper Canyon, Grey Wolf, Milkweed, Boa, and who am I forgetting? Did I say coffee? Coffee. Yeah. Coffee house, those yeah. those presses, 
those they all they all those founders all knew each other and they all talked together and they all sort of supported each other when and they all founded within a couple of years of each other and it was centralized in Minneapolis at that time the guy who founded Copper Canyon was out there as well right hmm. uh, I didn't know that yeah 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 Minneapolis and Al Poulin who was the guy who founded Boa was uh, I don't know that he was in Minneapolis but he knew all of them so right yeah and Therese Wenson was there and so there was a movement of people who kind of support each other in that way and we were like that in the early days Rebecca Joyelle Henry me uh we all knew each other we Rusty we didn't know her as well but I knew of her and then we kind of connected with her so I think there were and she was in the west coast east coast kind of separation was there as well but we kind of and Joyelle was a fence author so they sort of were connected in that. There was there was there was a little bit of a and I knew Rebecca from New York, so I think we all sort of had the similar idea, which was, you know, we 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 saw this sort of like fragmented landscape of poetry where you had the experimental writers over here and then you had the kind of more mainstream writers over here. I mean, Rebecca's initial concept was fence was with fence was um why do we need to have this barrier between you know, these different areas of poetry, where do you put someone like Jean Valentine? She even cites, she cites Jean Valentine in her initial kind of editorial manifesto. And I think that idea was so compelling to a lot of us as younger writers. And it did capture a certain zeitgeist, a certain moment where we were reading, you know, books like Michael Palmer's um, book at Passages, or we were reading Jory Graham's 2000 year she published in year 2000 her book swarm you know which really drew from different you know different elements we were reading susan howe then you know she's people are you know she i and people are still reading susan howe and she's still important but you know in those days she she became a chancellor of the academy of american poets you know like so there was a way that um, experimental poetry was really being centralized and taken very very seriously and i think we all kind of thought separately in our own little houses worth sort of thinking like, you know, now's the time to really see who's out there, younger writers who are doing this kind of interesting work and bringing work back into print. So at Nightboat, we were reprinting Myung Mi Kim and we were reprinting Fanny Howe and we were reprinting Michael Burkhardt and, you know, a lot of writers who had gone out of print who were not being read anymore, we were trying to revive and Fence was doing the same thing. Yeah. It was an exciting time. It is an exciting time. Twenty years seems like not that long and a long time at the same time. Yeah, I, I mean, I know. Um, well, just to kind of end a little bit with the book. I mean, your book is dedicated to Jean Valentine. It is, um, yeah. Music arrest. So I assume she was a very important figure. Is a still a very important figure to you as a writer? Yeah, a hundred percent. She is. She is and was. Her work is just the music of it, the heart of it the immediacy, the way she captures a moment, you know, she is my Dickinson and my salon and my, you know, anyone you could think of. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She's really like, if it was a desert Island situation, you know, and I had to choose, <laughs> I would take her work with me on there. <laughs> and then, you know, the last thing is like, there's, so much in here in this book about spirituality and faith. The last kind of essay is faith and silence. I mean, I have all different kind of, you know, God's true language is silence and breath. Um, there's all different kind of parts in here. Um, uh, what if God is improvising like Coltrane? I mean, you know, I guess we're talking. I are would you consider yourself a spiritual writer? What what is your relationship to spirituality? I mean, I don't and I don't know if it's organized religion or 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 something else. I mean, it obviously is a huge thing. Yeah, yeah, it's not organized religion, not anymore. I did try that. <laughs> I tried a couple of different iterations of it, and frankly, they're all fine. I think the part about organized religion is not find the religion you like, but find the organization you like. I mean, to find like-minded people that you can do things in community with feels like as a way of being alive um, is, is good enough for me, you know? Um, so I don't really need to go belong to a church because, you know, I might go to a yoga class uh, that I really like, or I go running on Saturday morning 
with the gay running club here. It's called Front Runners. You know, that's as much for me as anything else, you know. Um, as for the spirit, I live with it every day. I don't find a dichotomy between the, the physical existence of the body and the breath that moves through it. Um, I suppose I no longer need a set of beliefs to guide me. I used to. And, and I do love that. I would go to the Upanishads probably more than I would go to any other sacred text. If you were, if we're talking about that desert Island again, and I can only take one with me, I would probably take the Upanishads. Um, so I can, why? Well, that, that's where the, that's where the wisdom that I, that's the, that, that holds the wisdom that I believe about the nature of spirit and the nature of existence. And that answers all the, you know, the main questions is, you know, where did I come from? What am I doing here? Why am I here? And what happens next? Where am I going? <laughs> you know, those are the three essential questions that any religion might, they might answer one of them more than the others um, or be obsessed more with one than the other, but they're mostly trying to answer those three questions. And so uh, I think if you can find a text that um, helps you not only to answer those questions, but I think maybe even more importantly, can, can continue to ask them and can continue to think about them. Um, I think that's the most important thing. You said something in, 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 in an interview, which I, I don't remember where I saw it, but I saw it recently because I was reading your, about re reading your things and, and about you as, as I was, um, knowing that we were going to talk today. And you said something about not, not having too firm and an idea about what you think about poetry or what you like about poetry. Does, is this ringing a bell for you? I mean, it sounds like something that Duchamp said, where he said, I'm suspicious of my own taste. And I might have just been riffing yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that's really sound advice in poetry and life, and especially when it comes to spiritual matters. Why get certain about something that you can never ultimately prove? That makes sense to it. I mean, you can you you be able to prove it to yourself after you're dead, but... You know what I mean? You'll die and you'll wake up and you'll be like, yeah, I was right. <laughs> or, oh, shit, I was not right. I was wrong. But that's the only moment where any of that really matters. Right. It is a, it is a particular brand of, uh, you know, it's, it's like a kind of a break with the reality to, to be sure of oneself in matters concerning God. I mean, <laughs> it doesn't yeah, make any some sense. people don't think that way at all. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. agree. I know that. But it's, yeah. you, do you understand? So, yeah, it, it's just, it's very troubling, you know? Yeah. So I think I've, I've just um, learned how to, you know, as you say, throughout my work, I am obsessed with matters of the spirit. Um, I have lots of ideas about it throughout the work and throughout my own life. But I don't see any need to be clear about anything or sure about anything. It seems counterintuitive to, to be either of those things. So what, what do you have coming out um, next? You mentioned the Lucille Clifton book. Yeah, the Lucille. So I've been writing a bunch of things that are not poetry. I have been writing poetry all along and we'll see what happens with that but I'm currently working on a book about Lucille Clifton that will be coming out in the fall of 24. And then I actually, before that, I have a novel which might be considered autofiction um, that is coming out from Coach House Press in Toronto, that it will be coming out in May of next year. So those are my two current projects. And I'm, I am writing poetry now, but as I told you, I'm really out in the middle of the ocean um, floating and, you know, I don't know where, what shape these poems will take or, or what my journey is going to be. I feel at the beginning of things. All right. That was Jeff Ellis and Joey's conversation with Kazim Ali. You can check out Kazim's Sukun, New and Selected Poems, wherever you buy books. 
And in addition to Jeff's work, you can check out Phonograph Editions at phonographeditions.com and Bunny Press at bunnypress with an e dot org. And you can check out our books too over at autofocuslit.com slash books. And that's also where you can find a t-shirt with the logo for this podcast on it, which is a really great way to support us, by the way, if you're thinking about it. And if you're still listening and you feel like rating or reviewing this podcast, wherever you listen to it, that's greatly appreciated. And if you want to do some extra listening today, and you want to hear about Jeff's work, you can go back to episode 88 of this podcast. Okay, that's it. Thanks for listening. Till next time.